I'm Betty Salonik, CEO and founder of Accelerate Investors. Welcome to our podcast, Chief Investment Officer Conversations, which brings to you what is on top of mind for the world's leading CIOs. In our conversations, we will explore their background, their current investment strategies, and their global outlook. In part one of my interview with Marcus Frampton, CIO of Alaska Permanent Fund Corporation, a $60 billion sovereign wealth fund, he shares with us his investment philosophy, top reasons why APF does not invest in a fund manager, and his thoughts on investing in private equity, co-investments, hedge funds, and tech in the era of COVID-19. Please enjoy. How have you been doing? How has COVID-19 impacted your work and life? Yeah, well, it's it's turned everything upside down here, probably not quite to the extent that it is in New York, but I've been working from home for about a month now. Uh, my my Peloton came two weeks ago, so oh, I spent nice. some time installing that, and and I so I think I'm ready to to weather whatever comes. But it's it's certainly been a, a tough environment for the markets, and then also for just Alaska here. We're very reliant on tourism, and we're also very reliant on oil production um, for the state, right. and so we're we're facing some difficult times ahead here from an economic standpoint. Indeed. Well, I'd just love to um, maybe back up a little for those who don't know you. Could you just introduce yourself, who you are, and what you do? Sure. So I'm the chief investment officer at the Alaska Permanent Fund Corporation. I've been in that role for two years now. Um, and in that function, we're managing the sovereign wealth fund for the state here. And I manage the investment team, which is 25 people. And our portfolio, which is around $60 billion, invested across five different asset classes. Thank you for that overview. I would love to hear a little bit about your background, where are you from, your career history, and also what drew you to APF? Sure. Yeah, I, I get a lot of questions from people about what the career path to get into a CIO role is. And I don't think there's any one set path to go down. Mine certainly was meandering and, and touched in a number of different areas. But I, I grew up in San Diego. I went to UCLA for college. And out of college, I went into the investment banking analyst program at Lehman. And that was back in 2002. So I had kind of the formative years as an analyst working on M&A deals and capital raising transactions for Lehman's clients. In 2005, I left Lehman for a small private equity firm in San Diego called PCG Capital Partners. Um, you know, the, the great financial crisis was a formative event in my life because um, I had been at, in San Diego at that firm for five years when it hit, and that firm didn't end up making it through the financial crisis. So I was, mm. um, I learned some lessons about risk, and I also, Right. Found myself at age, you know, 29 in San Diego with a big mortgage, uh, out of work. Um, and I actually, I was fortunate because I, I got an opportunity to work at a Hellman and Friedman portfolio company called LPL Financial in San Diego. Um, and, and I was active, uh, working on, on acquisitions for, for that company. And, you know, that was, that two years working at a private equity portfolio company, was uh, 
you know, a lot of work and I learned a ton presenting investment opportunities for the company I worked at to, to the board, which was controlled by some pretty smart private equity guys and gals. And after two years there, I went up to, to the permanent fund and that was, you know, I talked about meandering around. It's not a, uh, an obvious choice. And in fact, I had never been to Alaska and I think I'm the only person I'm aware of or have met that that has gotten a, a real job off LinkedIn. So I was on you know LinkedIn one day and I saw a job posting to be a portfolio manager on private equity at the permanent fund. And you know I I did the one click apply and forgot about it. Next thing I knew, I was on a, a phone interview, and next thing I knew, I was flying up to Juno. And what a great place! Wow. I think the you know the if you like the outdoors and and like fresh air and and just a real great place to live. Juno fits the bill. The thing is, is I went up and interviewed in July. I got the job, moved up in September, and the uh, the sixty degree weather and and sunshine until midnight uh, was replaced by icy sidewalks and three hours of sunlight oh, yeah. a day. So. Um, uh, whenever I'm recruiting people for, for the permanent fund, I, I try to give the balance of how difficult it is for someone from a place like California to go through the winter, uh, contrasted with what a great place it is here in the summer. And, you know, when I went up there, a lot of my friends in San Diego thought I'd last about a month. And that was 2012, and I've now been here for uh, eight years. So there's certainly something up here that, that kept me and it's been a great place to live. Nice. Thank you for sharing that. How do you spend your time as CIO? I'm two years into the role and it's shifted in the, in the two years I've been here based on what we've been focused on at the time. You know, when we first started, when I first started in this role, a, a major project we were working on was uh, our risk management systems. And we had a new chief risk officer who came in with a lot of experience and worked with me and others on the team on getting our, we use the BlackRock Aladdin system, which is, I think most people in the industry either use MSCI or BlackRock Aladdin. Um, the Aladdin system is more complex and, and I think probably a little bit harder to use than the MSCI system that we historically had. And so it took a while to get that dialed in. But now that that we have and working with our chief risk officer, it's at a great place. But that was a big focus right at the beginning. And, you know, my history at the fund was working in the alternatives portfolio across real estate, hedge funds, private equity, venture capital. I've really focused on not just gravitating to what I know. So I probably spend a little bit more time on the public markets now that we've got the the, the risk system dialed in. And then particularly in periods like we're having right now with market volatility, a lot of the day-to-day actions in public markets, and we're continuing to invest in privates, but on a, uh, you know, a more extended due diligence basis on investments versus day-to-day rebalancing. So I'm covering it all. There's a lot that was new to me in terms of uh, interaction with board members and in some respects being in the public face of the fund, like this interview we're, we're doing here. So I, I'm covering a lot. I've never been busier, but it's been a blast. That's great to hear. I'm curious, what would you say is your investment philosophy? 
Yeah, I mean, everyone has a different one. I'm a big believer in finding sources of uncorrelated returns. So all institutional investors have big equity exposure. They vary among plans, but you know our public equity exposure is around 40%. Private equity is another 14%. Um, and so if we can find things that behave differently, the most notable place for us is our hedge fund portfolio. We spend a lot of time on getting uncorrelated managers in there. And then gold is actually a new area that we're investing in that's uncorrelated. So I'm a believer in finding uncorrelated return. I'm a believer in diversification. I'm probably not as a big bet person as some CIOs might be. I think that the one thing I've learned, whether it's from my, seeing what happened to my first employer, Lehman Brothers, and or seeing others play out in the financial crisis, was just to be humble that markets are very difficult to navigate. And so if you're going to make a big bet, which for us would be a private investment that represents 1% or 2% of our fund, you have to have a pretty high bar for that. So as a result, I think in the time I've been here, we've in my current role, we've probably reduce the size of of some of the the co-investments we do and and so for us you know a typical private equity co-investment might be 30 or 40 million dollars and a typical private equity fund commitment might be 50 to 100 i think those numbers are probably a little smaller than other big state funds and it comes from that desire to have some diversification and that no one really knows for sure on any individual investment. So diversification is very important to me. And now I'd like to learn more about what it's like to invest as APF. What would you say are the top three reasons why managers don't obtain funding? Yeah, I think that the, um, probably the biggest is that the strategy isn't a fit with precisely what we're trying to do. So, you know, I talked about um, hedge funds is an uncorrelated source of return. Unfortunately, most hedge funds are net long equities at any given time. So there are managers that add a lot of value, but if they're net long equities like most hedge funds are, they're not a fit with our portfolio. Um, and by extension, it's the same in the other asset classes in each area. We're looking to build out certain exposures and we need to find a manager that fits with that. And then the other probably two factors that disqualify investments for us is um, AUM growth. Um, so if the fund is just growing too much, it starts to invalidate the prior track record. And team dynamics also will factor into a decision. So team instability is probably the, the, the biggest one. But other team factors are, you know, lack of diversity, lack of a deep enough bench. So on the hedge fund side, they kind of need to be able to pass like an operational due diligence. And and that requires in today's world, segregation of duties and back office, a chief compliance officer, a CFO. So everyone's not ready for institutional allocation from um, a fund like ourselves or other state funds. And, and a lot of that comes into the team. You know, if you're losing people, if you don't have a diverse team, and if you don't have the, the, the depth of bench that we're looking for. You mentioned a lack of diversity. How do you hold managers accountable on that? How do you ask them about their diversity? 
Well, I think that when we're doing due diligence on managers, it's really important to talk to people at different levels in the organization. And um, it takes a little bit of extra work. I mean, you have to do an on-site and you have to, you know, specifically request that you want to talk to an analyst or a vice president, because if you don't do that, you're going to talk to the senior partner and the marketing representative. And it's a pretty, most things in, in investing I've found are pretty subjective and qualitative. And it's one of those things where you like know it when you see it. But when you're talking to a junior person, when you're doing due diligence on the on a fund, it's helpful to get into like what their investment process is and how how do investment committee meetings work. And and so I've I believe that a a diversity of input into investment decisions leads to a better outcome. I think there have been studies that have proven that. I think you might have some links to some on your website. Um, and so I believe yes. that. And and there ha- and it's amazing how open and candid people tend to be when you're in a due diligence setting like that if you can get someone one-on-one. And so we do a you know a qualitative uh discussion of how decisions get made, how can people at different levels provide input and and we just observe the culture of the firm in a in a very honestly qualitative way. Thank you. I'm interested in hearing now how you're thinking about the following types of investments within our current context of COVID-19. Co-investments. APF is known for its success with co-investments and your interests to continue growing this area. For instance, you have $1.5 billion in private equity co-investments with a 60% IRR. Congratulations. That's amazing. Is this an area you would like to ramp up even more given our current environment? And what types of opportunities are you seeing? Yeah, well, I appreciate you uh, plugging our, our track record there. I have to admit that that part of that that return number um, was driven by some early investments we made when I was first first at the firm that were led by our CIO at the time, Jay Willoughby, who's now at TIFF, and uh, Dave Falacci, who was a uh, uh, portfolio manager uh, focused on um, actually biotech direct investing, among other things. And and so we were the kind of cornerstone investor in the Series A round for a company called Juno Therapeutics. Um, the the name is not a coincidence. Uh, mm-hmm. It was a Seattle-based company that we invested in. And and we put 120 million into their Series A, and it turned into a huge success. It it was ultimately went public, and was purchased by Celgene, who themselves got purchased a, a year after that. And it it was like a 10x type investment on 120 million. So um, uh, that was a big success. And and even though Jay and Dave have left, we've continued that with Steve Mosley, who's our head of alternatives, is is focused on biotech. Uh, among other things, and for example, Vir Bio, V-I-R Bio, is a public company that we invested in that's done quite well in in the last several months, in part because their focus is on developing vaccines for infectious diseases, and they're working on some things with COVID. So I think this, this history in biotech has helped a lot in this market environment, and it kind of speaks to the diversification that I was talking about earlier, that we absolutely have co-investments in the traditional leverage buyouts um, and private infrastructure and things like that. But we've developed 
some expertise in some niche areas that enables us to have a portfolio that doesn't quite look like our peers and behaves a little bit different than the index. And so on the co-investment side, we're very active today still. We're fortunate because our target allocation for private equity is growing. We're, when I joined the firm, we were at about 3% uh, with a target of 5 We're at 14 today, going to 19 in the next five years. So we've got some runway to put money to work in an environment that is much better than what we've seen in the last five to six years. So we're very active there. And it's kind of across our managers. Most of our managers are seeing much better opportunities than they have in the past. And the investment we've made in those relationships has enabled us to kind of be a first call in many cases on co-investment. So we're spending a lot of time on that right now. And now hedge funds. You have been overweight hedge funds and you've predicted that your market neutral hedge funds would outperform in a down market. How is this strategy currently working out and are you seeing good opportunities to allocate further to this strategy? Sure. The hedge fund portfolio I've had to defend for the past five years, you know, everyone likes to pick on hedge funds and people should pick on hedge funds because they're not particularly transparent. They're very high fee. Um, and they come to investors with a promise that people should look at with skepticism. And that's that you can go into the most liquid, efficient markets in the world and start the year in the whole 2% on your management fee and then dig yourself out to an attractive return, and then do it on a market-neutral basis. I mean, that's about as difficult of a setup as, as you can uh, imagine in investing. And we've yes. focused, like I said earlier, on the market-neutral segment of the market and macro, because that area is also uncorrelated. Um, and I feel like I've put a lot of political capital on the line um, at our board meetings you know, consistently saying this is going to be uh, a portfolio that that can make money in a down market. And I think the hedge fund industry has had a tough PR problem the last eight years because everyone compares them to the S&P 500 when in reality hedge funds compete for capital in our portfolio with fixed income and cash. And so, you know, when the market started getting volatile in March, I was a little concerned because um, this is when we're going to get tested. And by and large, I think the hedge fund industry and our hedge fund investments, you know, really distinguish themselves. There are examples that you can Google of funds that, that really have had trouble in the last month. Um, and mm -hmm. um, But our portfolio was down about 5% in March. We're about flat on the fiscal year to date, our fiscal year is June 30 to June 30. So nine, you know, nine months in, we're about flat. So I'm going to call that a success. Nice. And technology, COVID-19 has heightened the power of technology. What is APF's commitment to technology investments? It's a big focus. I mean, I talked about our, what we're doing in the biotech area earlier. Um, you know, we're allocated to some of the top venture funds on the tech side. And and so I would say that our weight relative to the industry is probably a little overweight tech. It's the biggest sector exposure we have in our private market portfolio. And if you just look at the public companies, tech has continued to outperform 
you know, through this. I think that the, uh, I think I saw the other day that the FANG stocks are actually up year to date. They've been the big winners in the last decade, and it looks like that's not going to change anytime soon. So it's an area we're really focused on. Thank you for listening to part one of my interview with Marcus Frampton. Stay tuned for part two. I'm Betty Salonique, founder and CEO of Accelerate Investors, and you've been listening to CIO Conversations. You can follow Accelerate Investors on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Thank you for listening.